0: all right ladies and gentlemen good evening to you it's been a hot minute since we've had class. Since we were snowed in or i stayed we were somethinged in last wednesday so it's been two weeks we are in romans chapter four we're gonna begin in verse number 12. romans 4 verse 12. obviously now um they decided that we're doing our life groups on romans too so they'll eventually be some overlap but if, if we're burning through four chapters Per session, you guys are going to be done. We're all going to be done in, in, you know, a couple of months. So, I, I guess I'll be done in a couple of months too. It, it'll feel like it's longer. That makes you feel better. Uh, so, what you'll get. And I was thinking about this because we were, because of circumstances, we were over here at the uh, the, the church group, the congregation, one that meets over here, uh, and Phil Fugit was teaching it, uh, and it did a great job. And I was talking to Lauren about how it's a good compliment. And so I would encourage you to to double down in your study with it, your life group study, and then you come in here and you get this too. Because it's two different things. You're getting an overview, and then you come in here, and you get that overview broken down into more minute detail. Um, So that's that. All right, Romans uh, chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse number 12. We're in the context talking about Abraham and what Paul's doing. He's talking about how Abraham, uh, because he was... Uh, Deemed righteous by God How he was declared righteous by God Before he was circumcised We've got the covenant of circumcision Which would become kind of the the De facto dividing line Between the Jewish people and the Gentile world Because Abraham was declared righteous In the sight of God uh, Before he was circumcised Then you cannot bind that And hold that as a necessity to salvation Because Abraham was made righteous Before that ever happened So you can't make that a prerequisite In addition to that He gets to be, Abraham does, the so-called father of faith, not just to the Jewish people who have that Abrahamic covenant of circumcision, but also he gets to be a father of faith to Gentile people who never had a circumcision covenant because Abraham was their example of faithful obedience before he was circumcised. So he gets to play both sides of that. And in fact, that's exactly what Paul says in a very particular kind of way in Romans 4 verse 12 I want you to notice not just what Paul says here what Paul doesn't say I want you to look at the way he says it and see if it doesn't jump out at you the way it does me Romans four twelve, and Abraham is the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only but also who walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham which he had yet being uncircumcised so in the big picture, this is just a summary of everything I just got through saying. Abraham gets to be the father of both, the, the spiritual ancestor to both Jew or Gentile because he was blessed by God, he was right with God both before and after his circumcision. All right, that's all there in this verse. But there's an additional thing I want you to notice. In the beginning of verse 12, see if, if our Bibles all say the same thing. Mine says, Abraham is the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only. Is that what yours says or something like that? Or not merely circumcised, but does it say he's the father of circumcision? Yes. Yes. Whether you're circumcised or not, Abraham is the father of circumcision. Okay, now I want you to see what Paul could have said that would have been true. Abraham is the father of circumcision to the Jews. True statement Abraham is the father of uh, uncircumcision to non Jews. Also a true statement this, The first 11 verses of this chapter That was two weeks ago So these people get to claim him as a blood ancestor Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 tribes The nation That's their that's their grand pattern But also we get to claim him as a spiritual ancestor That's Galatians chapter 3 Because we follow on this template of Abraham a faithful obedience through the seed which came from him Which is Christ And therefore we get to be Christians And we get to call, call him and claim him as a spiritual father Ancestor in the same way So whether you're Jews or non-Jews, he's your spiritual father. And I don't mean father like we call God our father. I mean ancestor, right? So father of circumcision to the Jews, father of uncircumcision to the non-Jews. Two true statements. But that's not what Paul says here. Paul says he is the father of circumcision to non-Jews. Why would he phrase it that way? Why wouldn't he, why would he not say, he's the father of uncircumcision to the non-jews just as he is the father of circumcision to the jews he could have said just those words and it would have been exactly right why did the holy spirit inspire him to phrase it this way he's the father of circumcision to the non-jews who aren't circumcised why would i need a father of circumcision to non-jews as we established in the previous verses those who are not jewish people who are not physically circumcised are spiritually regarded as if if you view, as the Jews did, if you view a circumcised person as a one who is in a covenant relationship with God, who has a special bond with God, if that's how you view the purpose of circumcision, then what Paul says in the first half of Romans 4 is that bond and that relationship can be found even to the non-circumcised, because when they are faithfully obedient to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are circumcised in their heart. They are spiritually circumcised. Abraham, Before he was ever physically cut, was spiritually cut. Before he was ever physically circumcised, he was spiritually circumcised. Before he ever had the physical covenant, he had a spiritual covenant. And it is through that means that he gets to be the father of a spiritual covenant with God to we who have no physical covenant with God. That's what Paul's saying. Romans 4, verse 12. Now verse 13. For the promise to Abraham that he should be the heir of the world, that promise was Not to Abraham or his seed through the law. It was a promise to Abraham. It was a promise to Abraham's seed, but it was not a promise through the law. It was a promise through the righteousness of faith. God declared Abraham righteous, not because of his circumcision, but before that, because of his faith. And so through that same template, he can declare me righteous and you righteous too. When we, through faith, obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Abraham gets to be the heir of the world, and his seed gets to inherit that blessing, not through the law of Moses, which came generations later to the descendants of Abraham, but through faith, which is a universal concept anyone can adhere to, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Verse 14, for if they which are of the law be heirs, if that's how it worked, you had to be of the law, you had to be part of that physical nation and just that nation, if that's how you got to be an heir of God, then faith is made void. It doesn't matter your faith. It's a matter of just your birthright. I was born into this tribe. I was born to this family. I was born with my physical ancestor being Abraham. And so that's where my salvation lies. Well, if that's the case, then you must be a Jew to be saved, which was essentially an argument that many Jewish Christians were trying to make. You want to become part of this church? It was a church established by a Jewish Messiah, founded on Jewish principles in a Jewish land. You must become a part of the Jewish nation yourself. They were saying that. And Paul says, no, it's... it's to use one of our favorite phrases, separate and apart from that. If, if you had to be part of the law to be an heir, then you wouldn't need faith, and all the promises would be made void. In fact, if you try to be saved by the law, grace is left you, Galatians 5.4. You're fallen from grace. There's, there's no value in seeking salvation in the law, because salvation is not found in the law. Salvation is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, something which has already been established, Romans 1, verse 16. So Paul's argument excuse you, so Paul's argument can be summarized as this. The promise of salvation predates the giving of the law. Therefore salvation predates the law. Therefore the law is not the means of attaining salvation. Verse 15. Why? Because, why is there no salvation in the law? Because the law works or accomplishes wrath. What does the law do? If salvation is not found in the law, then what is found in the law? If salvation is not attained in the law, then what is attained in the law? I'll tell you what you get out of the law. You get not the salvation of God, you get the wrath of God. How does the law give me wrath? Well, where there is no law, there is no transgression. If you don't have a law telling you not to do something, then you're not doing it. It's not against the law, therefore you don't get any punishment. The purpose of the law, in the way, strictly in the way Paul's framing it in this argument. There's other purposes, other points behind the law. But in this case, the way he's using it here, the purpose of the law is to point out the fact that you broke the law. The point of the law, written down and and declared and passed on generation to generation, the point of the law is to tell you all the things that you should have done but didn't do. They were written down and told you to do or not do, and you either didn't do them when you should have or you did them when you shouldn't have. The purpose of the law was to point out, the point of the law is to magnify your sin, to put a spotlight on your sin and to say, here's all the ways you disappointed God. The law can't take away your sin. The law can't improve your relationship with God. It can only make it worse when you break it. All it can do is tell you how you made your relationship with God worse, but it can't reverse that. Grace reverses that. The blood of Christ reverses that. Now, you might be hearing this and think, let me get this straight. If what you're saying is true, that the point of the law is to bring about God's wrath against me for breaking it, because, as he says at the end of verse 15, where there is no law, there's no transgression. That's just an axiom. It's just a statement that's true of itself, right? If there is no law, there's no transgression of the law, because sin is the transgression of the law, according to First John. So if, if, if there is no sinning without a law, then why doesn't God just not give laws And if he never gave laws, there'd be no sin. Isn't that a true statement? That is a true statement. That is true. If God never gave laws, there could be no sin because the definition of sin is to transgress the law. Where there is no law, there is no sin. That's Romans 4.15.
1: So then why does God give laws?
0: Why why not just give no laws? Because God has expectations. He can't help it. It's his nature. He is inherently right and because he is inherently right and inherently righteous, there are things that just are inherently unrighteous. Anything that is against God's nature is sin. It is it is sinful. It is wicked. It is ungodly. What God does is he takes that idea and he codifies it. He transcribes it. He informs you of the fact of the reality. See, God could have, in, in a hypothetical scenario, God could have said Adam and Eve, nothing. He didn't have to say Don't eat that tree. Don't eat from the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He could have not made that a law. And if he hadn't made that a law, then Eve eating from it would not have been a sin. Because if there's no law, there's no transgression. But I say he could have done that in a hypothetical, but he actually could not have done that. Because God knew that was a wrong thing to do. That was bad within himself. And so he informed them of this bad thing. That's what a law is. He had to tell them, you can't eat from that tree. Why not? In the most divine way, because I said so. That's the answer. Because I said you can't. You can't eat from that tree. And now I'm informing you of that statement. I'm informing you of that truth, which is if you eat from that tree, you've done a bad thing. That's a law. And the consequences were breaking. It all baked into that same pie. So he has to tell them that. And now that they've known it, now they have a law. and Now when they sin, they transgress that law, which was always there in the mind of God. It's just before that moment when God said not to do it, it had not been proverbially written down. It was never written down, but, you know, orally given. So you can argue in a hypothetical kind of what-if scenario, why doesn't God just not give us any laws? Because then the world would be full of anarchy, and we would still be guilty of doing unrighteous deeds. The law points out what unrighteousness is, so that when we do them, we will be aware of them to do better in the future. The problem is you've already done them in the past. You've already sinned now, and there's no law to take away your sin. So what do you do? You're, You're out of luck, up the creek without a paddle, until along comes Christ. A point which he's slowly building to, and he'll get to in just a second. 4, 16. So it's not of law. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end that the promise might be sure to all the seed of Abraham, not to them which are of the law, but also to them which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now we have salvation not by a law, which the Jews would claim, but a salvation to everybody. Those who are under the law and those who are not under this law of Moses. Those who had a covenant physically and those who have a spiritual covenant, both. The way the Jews found salvation, they thought it was because they kept the law. It wasn't. Their salvation was by Christ. In other words, the Jews' claim to salvation's fame is because they have a spiritual covenant relationship with God through Abraham. The same way my spiritual claim to fame. The reason I get to say I'm saved is because I have a spiritual covenant relationship with God through Abraham's seed, which is Christ. Me and the Jews, we have the exact same salvation coming from the exact same source. The fact that they had a covenant of circumcision and their own little nation carved out for them in the promised land is completely immaterial. It's completely beside the point. We get salvation in the same way from the same source in the same means, which is the covenant of Abraham. Spiritually, the Jews had a spiritual ancestry in Abraham. They also had a physical one, but it doesn't matter. I have a spiritual relationship with Abraham. He's my spiritual ancestor and the Jews' spiritual ancestor too. That's the whole point. So it's a faith, verse 16 again. It's a faith by grace to the end of the promise of Abraham that your seed will inherit the earth, your salvation will come through you. That that would be not by the law, but by the faith of Abraham. When we emulate Abraham's faith, what's Abraham's faith? Trust and obedience. He believed, so he did. He was compelled by his faith to do what God told him to do. And that's the template for us. And when you follow that, you get salvation. 17. A little parenthetical. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. You don't need that. That's just a reminder. It clarifies verse 16. The promise made sure to all the seed. Verse 16. What's the promise? That I've made you the father of many nations. So just forget that parenthetical is there. That's just a reminder. Take it out. Read 16 and 17 as one thought. Verse 16. It is a faith that it might be by grace to the end that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to those who are of the law, but that which is of the faith of Abraham, the father of us all before him whom he believed, even God. Our salvation is by God in whom Abraham had faith. Our salvation comes from God, not from the law, not from circumcision, but it comes by grace given to us by God, by faith we have in God. It comes by faith, the faith that Abraham had in God, a faith in a God who could quicken the dead and call things which are not as though they were. Abraham's name famously changed from Abram to Abraham. Abram, a word which is generally thought to mean um, a uh, exalted man or an exalted leader or an exalted father, something like that. But in Abraham, a father of the multitude, a father of multitudes. Well, God gave Abraham that name before he was a father of multitudes. It was a name given to him in promise. It was a name given to him with the expectation that God would fulfill in him some grand gesture. And Abraham believed that. And he believed even though at the time that promise was made, he was a dead man, he believed that God would accomplish great life through him. How was Abraham a dead man? He could not have children. That's the context. You'll see it in a couple of verses. But in the sense where he says in verse 17 that God could bring the life back to dead things or bring life back to the dead, that's talking about Abraham and Sarah's barrenness, inability to have children. And you'll see that in the context. So because of that, in spite of that, they're still going to have children because God had a promise to keep and God kept it through them. Verse 18. Abraham, against hope, believed in hope. My Bible says. Does your Bible start that way? Mine says who, Abraham, against hope, believed in hope. What does yours say? In hope, he believed against hope. So it still says against hope. They're going to have against hope. Contrary to hope? The word against here is para, para in the original language. It means standing beside. This is not an opposition to hope. This is Abraham standing along with hope, believed in the hope that God would fulfill his promise. In the hope that God would fulfill the promise that he might become the father of many nations. Abraham used hope as collateral to go forward with doing something that should not have worked. Something which he had no doubt, having been married to Sarah for many years, had done many times without producing a child. Yet now this time, God says, if you do this deed again, now you will have a child. So uh, it, with that hope in his mind that he would become the father of many nations, and God promised him that so your seed will be ultimately coming, in, culminating in Christ. With that promise, with that hope, verse 19, Abraham, being not weak in faith, he did not consider his own body, though it was dead. He didn't consider it dead when he was about 100 years old, nor did he consider the deadness of Sarah's womb. That's the kind of death we're talking about. Not a physical death. This is not talking about when he's about to offer Isaac on the altar many years after this. People sometimes jump to that in this verse and they take it out of context. We're not talking about Isaac and the altar here. That's an that's almost physical death. That's not this kind of death. This is the inability to procreate. He is, he is, his loins are dead. Her. Uh, her womb is dead, okay, in a metaphorical poetic sense. Can't have children. They've been married for all these years. I don't even know how many decades they've been married. And as married people do, they have had sex many times, and they have not been able to have children. No doubt they wanted, no doubt they tried, and no doubt they were unable. No doubt, they were unable. Now God says, this thing which you have done, which had always resulted in nothing, you'll do, and it will result in something. And I, I hate to sound crass talking about sex like that, but it's very important to emphasize here Because Isaac is going to be born by faith, but not by faith only. And that sounds like a joke, but it needs to be made, because that's the whole point Paul's building to. You'll see in just a second. Again, verse 19. Abraham was not weak in faith, in faith that God's promise would be fulfilled when he and Sarah have sex, that he considered not his own body, though it was dead. He didn't regard it as, I can't because I can't. I I can have sex with my wife, but we cannot procreate, because it's never happened before. And it hasn't, but it will this time, because God made a promise. So he did not dwell on that. He didn't he didn't he didn't let the fact that he knew what he knew to be true stop him from doing something. It is impossible for me to have children. Okay. God can do the impossible. It is impossible for my wife to bear a child. Okay. God's going to do the impossible. So he didn't consider the deadness of Sarah's womb, he didn't consider his own body now dead. Verse 20, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. He didn't let unbelief cause his uh, faith to stagger, to waver to prevent him from fulfilling his obligation. He was strong in faith, he gave glory to God, verse 21, and he was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he would also perform. Isaac did not just, a stork from heaven did not just drop him off. Abraham and Sarah did what husbands and wives do. And then this time, it produced a child. where all the other times, it did not. Why? Because God. Does God accomplish something? It wasn't like a, it wasn't an immaculate conception like with Mary who had not known her husband, Joseph. It was not like that. Abraham knew Sarah and then she conceived. So Abraham believed that God would give him a son through Sarah, but Abraham had to do the deed. Isaac was born by faith, but not by faith only. 22. And because of that, 22, he was regarded as a righteous man. As a matter of fact, this is the second time he's been regarded as righteous. Because he was regarded as righteous when he left Ur of the Chaldees in the first place. Because he had that kind of faith to go, God regarded him righteous. And because he had this kind of faith to act, God regards him as righteous. And then later again, when he has to offer Isaac on the altar, this son of promise who has yet to produce any children of his own, who is supposed to be this father of many nations himself, because Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the nation. And here he just has Isaac, and God says, I want you to kill him. I want you to lay him on the altar. I want you to drive a, a, a dagger through his heart. I want you to open his throat with your blade. And Abraham just says, well, I guess God's going to have to raise him from the dead. That's Hebrews 11. I don't remember the verse. Uh, I thought I wrote it down. It doesn't matter. It's Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered his son Isaac. That, that verse. Abraham regarded his son as someone he was about to kill. He did not regard his son as, well, surely God's about to stop this, which is what happened, but Abraham wasn't thinking that. Because Abraham thought, God gave me a command, I have to obey the command. He told me to leave, I left. He told me to produce a son, I produced a son. He tells me to kill my son, I'm going to kill my son. What on is God going to do? Because that son's supposed to be something. He's supposed to turn out into something. I'm supposed to kill him? I guess God's going to raise him from the dead. That presupposes you're going to kill him. I could not have presupposed that. I would have been just stuck on, surely he won't let me go through with this. And if that had been my thought, I wouldn't have gone through with it. But Abraham was going to go through with it. That's why he's a man of faith, because he was going to kill his son. The only one who was going to stop Abraham from killing his son was God himself. Now, you have faith like that. I double dog dear. Verse 24. Finally, Jesus comes up. It's been a while since we talked about him. That's, That's Paul's whole point here. The whole, the, whole, the whole of Romans 1 through 4 is, Romans 1, you need Jesus. Exclamation point. And people say, yeah, but why? And he says, well, I'll tell you. But first, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. And you've got to see how the patriarchs weren't saved by their system. They needed Jesus. And then you have the Jews, and they weren't saved by their system. They needed Jesus. The whole world is lost. The whole world needs Jesus. You need Jesus. And this is chapter 4. 1, 2, 3, and he doubles back around to it. So 4, 24. For us also. Abraham was counted as righteous, and us also. We get to be counted as righteous if we believe on him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Abraham said, I am dead, but God can bring to life that which is dead. And through me will come Isaac. That same God took Jesus, who was literally dead, and raised him up. And it is through him that your salvation is attained. Again, verse 24. We also can have righteousness imputed to us if conditional if we believe on him that raised up our Lord Jesus from the dead. Trust in God. That's the condition of your obedience. Because if you trust in God, you will obey God. And if you do not trust in God, you will not kill your son. If you do not trust in God, you will not leave error of the Chaldees. If you do not trust in God, you will not, you will not, you'll probably have sex with your wife, but you will not be able to produce a son because you won't do it in faith. Okay, that's the point I'm trying to make. You must trust and obey. So that's faith in Jesus Christ. It is joyful trust conjoined with obedience. If it's just half, it's not at all. It must be both. <coughs> trust motivates obedience. And that's, I just don't have the time. It's already seven twelve. James chapter 2. Everyone is always trying to pit James and Romans against each other. James and Paul against each other. And people hold up Romans and say, look, Romans teaches faith-only salvation. And so we don't need James. Martin Luther's whole big shtick was we don't need James. He tried to rip it out of every Bible he came across. But James and Paul are not in opposition. They are just arguing apples and oranges. They're two different arguments. Paul's whole point here is to say there is futility in works without faith. James's whole point is to say there's futility in faith without works. They're just arguing two opposite sides of the same coin. But they're not arguing against each other. They're arguing two different things. Listen, heartless commandment keeping does not bring you salvation. You cannot just check boxes and earn salvation. But in the same token, in the same way, your good, 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 good vibrations is not going to get you to heaven either. doesn't matter how swell a person you may be. If you have not obeyed, it means nothing. 25. Of Jesus, he was delivered. He was dead and God rose him for a purpose to deliver you from your offenses. And he was raised again. For your justification. That same word is imputed unto him righteous or counted unto him as righteous. Whatever your Bible says when he talks about Abraham or you, and he says Abraham believed God and he was counted to him for righteousness. That phrase is summarized in one word, justified. Abraham was justified, he was counted as righteous. You get to be justified, counted as righteous. Okay, where is that justification attained? In the death and resurrection of Jesus. Romans 4:25. It is not attained in your keeping the law. It is not attained in your checking boxes. It is attained by grace through faith in obedience to the gospel, which is paid for by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Chapter five. Wait, yeah, chapter five. So your salvation is attained through the death and resurrection of Christ. But what? Is, how, what is? How does that work? Is it just because He died and rose, I automatically get salvation? No, nope. no nope. salvation. Where's my book? salvation salvation is a doorway here's salvation here is condemnation let's just pretend this is all of us right here we're all condemned before this door was here there was nothing on the other side we were just all condemned we all had sin and fallen short of the glory of God that's it you're done there's no commandment to undo it it's done you're condemned then Jesus came along and he says I'm the door that's me Jesus he's the door and he says, if you'll go through this door on the other side, is salvation. Your salvation is attained by going through the door. Through is a verb. Well, going through, that's a verbial phrase. You must do the thing, you must go through the door. You must perform the action that requires you to go from here to here. You can't just stand here and say, I really believe that'll work. Oh, yeah, because it will, but you're still here despite the fact that you really believe it. If you really believed it, You'd go through here. What often people mean is, I really believe it'll work, but but I don't want to do the things I have to do to get here. I'm not prepared to live the life that it takes to live here. I'm not prepared to accomplish the things God told me to accomplish to get this and to maintain this. I believe it'll work, but it's just, I can't, I won't, I'm not gonna. And that's the true statement. You can, but you don't wanna. And if you really, really, really believe to the point where you were willing to give your life to this one that you believe, if you were really giving your life, then you would start walking, and you would cross through the door to salvation. You believe it could be done, but you're not prepared to do what it takes to get it. That's what Jesus means when he says, there's a broad way that leads to destruction, and a narrow, not narrow and broad, but easy and constricting, easy and difficult not like it's a, it's a narrow path and only a few people are going to get it. It's a narrow path, only a few people are taking it. Only a few people are willing to do what it takes to cross it. This narrow path is still made available for the entire of humanity, past, present, and future. But only some are going to take advantage of it because it is a difficult path. This way through, this doorway to salvation is not an easy path. It requires self-sacrifice. Take up your cross and follow me. But it is easier than the alternative, which is toil in your condemnation and then burn forevermore. So You choose. Anyway, that, that this whole doorway is made possible. My point is, this whole doorway is made possible by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But what does that mean to you? He's done the thing. He's died. He's been buried. He rose. I haven't done anything. So what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to take his death, burial, and resurrection and have it apply to me so that I can receive the justification found in it? How does that work? That's Romans chapter 6. But we're not in chapter 6. He has to build up to chapter 6, which is Romans chapter 5. Chapter 4, you get to be justified. Whether in the law, out of the law, circumcised, not circumcised, you get to be justified. 5.1, therefore being justified. You get to be justified, not by the law, but by faith. Chapters 1 through 4. Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 1 is basically Romans, verse 2. The whole Romans chapters 1 through 4 is the introduction. And now Paul says, now, having given you the introduction, now you're justified by faith. Now you understand that. Let me explain what that entails. Let me tell you all the good things that come with being justified by faith. You get to have peace with God. It was by faith in God that the future gospel of Christ saved those before Jesus came. Adam, David, Moses, Abraham, etc., it is in that present gospel that people today get to be justified. Because Adam, Abraham, David, Moses, they put their faith that God would save them. We put our faith that God has saved us. We look back, they look forward. Um, well, I wrote a note to myself. Hang on, just pause just a second. I had such a terrible handwriting. I don't know if you noticed that. <laughs> It has a good dad? Oh, I know what I said. Yeah, okay, yeah, right. I wanted, I, don't know what else. I wanted you to stop and think about those people I just mentioned. Abraham, uh, Moses, David. Not perfect, but we would hold them up as esteemable people. We would say, David, great guy. Obviously, Bathsheba, we put that aside. But David, great guy. Moses, great guy. Obviously, did some things, but murdered a guy. But still, great guy. We hold up these guys in spite of themselves. Okay, fine. But the point is, the danger there is you start holding them up in spite of themselves, and you start to look at their merits. You start to look at their deeds. You start to say, Abraham, of course, Abraham was saved. Abraham's such a great guy. Abraham was not saved because he was a great guy. He was saved because he put his faith in God and he led him to obedience. Moses was not saved because he was a great guy. Because despite how great he was, he still murdered a dude. David, great guy. So you might have someone in your life that you want to say, he's a great guy. He's such a good dad. I'm sure he is. You're supposed to be. There's no bonus points for that. You're not going to be saved or condemned whether or not you're a good dad. If you're a saved person, you're going to be a good dad. But there are many lost people who are also good dads. Has that good dad obeyed the gospel? That's what matters. She was such a great old lady. I'll bet she was. I bet she made the best cookies. Did she obey the gospel? That's the hard truth. That's the point. We are justified not because we're good people. Because without Jesus Christ, we're not good people. We're justified by faith in the one who was good, who was perfect, who wasn't just a good guy. He was a perfect man. That's what you're saved by. Romans 5, 2. And it is through him, my Bible says by whom? dia. Through him, we have access. My Bible says by faith, not dia, not through faith. It is we have access in the faith, literally into this grace wherein we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I am not standing on the promises of my good deeds. Yeah, that fits the cadence of the song, but that's not truth. I am standing on the promises of Christ. I'm standing on the promises of what he has done for me. So it is by him, Christ, that we have access. And we get that access in the faith into the grace. And it's in that grace that we stand, not in ourselves. Verse 3. And not only so, listen, this is Paul telling you, let me tell you all the reasons why it's swell to be a Christian, why it is so good to endure, why it's worth it to make this journey from here through the door to here. You get to have grace in which you stand, on which you stand. You get to plant your feet on the assurance, the blessed assurance of your salvation. That's great. What else does he offer? I'll tell you, he offers you tribulations. Verse 3, we glory in tribulations doesn't that just sound great we get to rejoice in suffering we glory in tribulations why because we know that our tribulations will produce will work will accomplish patience it is not paul is not being facetious and he is not being flippant he's not being cavalier when he says you glory in tribulations he doesn't stop there he doesn't just leave it there and say, you know, you should feel terrible if you think this is really terrible or, or this, this really stinks and I'm going through this. That you should feel bad if you ever say it stinks to endure a hardship because it does stink to endure a hardship. If it didn't, it wouldn't be called a hard ship. It'd be an easy ship. They don't call them that. So, of course, it stinks. But he doesn't leave it there. He says, have some perspective. Have some foresight. Put that, put that, that uh, Abrahamic mentality on who had to look ahead to the promise and now you do that. You look ahead. You have this hardship now, this tribulation now. It is going to, when it's done with you, produce patience. So I'm going to read James 1, 2 through 4. James 1, 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Look at the way James, you may not be done, but you're done now. Look at the way James and Paul just compliment each other. These are not adversarial books, one is just building off of the other one. In this case, James says, let patience do its job. Don't give up on patience, ironically, don't get impatient with patience. Because patience takes a while to finish, and when it's done, then good things will come from it. Let these hardships produce patience, and let patience have its complete, perfect work, so that you can be complete and whole, lacking nothing. Don't be an incomplete person by cutting patience off before it's done. Have you ever said, don't lie, because I know what the answer is yes, Oh, don't ever pray for patience? You should never pray for patience. Have you, ever, have you ever said that? Have you ever heard someone say that? I have definitely said that. I have definitely heard it said. If you have it, it's because you're not old enough. It was an old lady thing that was said a long time ago for many years. Maybe some old ladies in here don't want to admit it, but you said it too. People have said it. Oh, we don't pray for patience. Don't you ever pray for patience? Because if you pray for patience, you're going to get something that's going to make you be patient. Okay. Okay. What if I said, don't ever pray for faith. Make sure you never pray for wisdom. Hey, be careful. Don't ever pray for compassion. Faith, patience, compassion, Wisdom, these things are from God. They are written in your Bible as perks of your salvation. They are not things to avoid. One way or another, you're going to have hardships. And hardships are going to cause you to have to learn patience, either the easy way or the hard way. And I would much rather learn the lesson of patience from God the teacher, because he's going to hold my hand through it, than learn it from the devil who wants to use it to break me. You should absolutely pray for patience and you will get hardships to teach it to you because that's just the recipe. What does he say? Tribulation accomplishes patience. If I want patience, I've got to get tribulation to get it. But Paul's point is to say it's worth it. You have this hardship that'll be worth the blessing of patience on the other side. If you never pray for patience, the hardship's still going to come and you're not going to be patient to handle it. But if you have patience... Because you've gone through a hardship with God, then tribulation will produce patience. And verse 4, patience will produce experience. I've been there. I've seen it. God has got me through it before. So he'll get me through it again. I've got experience now. I've been through this. You can you can use it to help somebody else who's going through their first big tribulation, but you can use it to help yourself when you're going through your 43rd. I'm going through another trial, but God got me through the first 42. Why wouldn't he get through the next one? I have experience now. It's I, Hope is purely based around my expectation of the future. But the longer you live with God, the more that hope gets to be realized and actualized. And you get to have hope become tangible. You can say, I have all this cloud of hope, this vaporous cloud that I couldn't hold my hands on, but a part of it became solidified. When God got me through that thing, now I can put it in my mind and say God got me through that. In the past, he did. So I know this vaporous cloud I can't put my fingers on, I know I will eventually be able to grab it. Because I've already grabbed it before. So I'll do it again. That's experience. And experience produces, there's that word, hope. Belief plus expectation. Belief is defined as trust plus obedience. Hope is belief plus expectation. I believe that God's going to do that thing he hasn't done yet. He hasn't done it, so I haven't seen it. He hasn't done it, so I can't say it like w- by actuality. But I have trust in him who has never failed to keep a promise. I have trust in him who has always come through. I, this, why do we have this giant book filled with thousands of years of history lessons, among other reasons to show you, look how many times God made promises that should never have happened, and then he just pulled it off. Not a rabbit out of a hat, but a maker pulling off the impossible because that's what he eats for breakfast, the impossible. And I read that and I get the experience and I get the I get the knowledge, I should say. I get the understanding of what God has done. And I think, well, I'm no different than them. I just do what they did. I'll do what they got. They put their trust in God and God did not let them down. And hope, speaking of, hope makes not ashamed. Verse five, hope will not let you down. Hope will not disappoint you. Hope will not say, stick your neck out for me. And I'll come through for you. And then you stick out your neck out for them. And then they're nowhere to be found. Hope will never do that. Because God is the one we're talking about here. And God will never leave you nor forsake you. God is always going to be there. God is always going to help you through. If you're holding his hand, his hand is... He's already in heaven. You're halfway there. So hope, you have this tribulation. This tribulation which produces experience. Or patience. This patience which produces experience. This experience which produces hope. And that hope, that whole process will never disappoint you. You may disappoint it. You may cut and run. You may give up, but hope will never disappoint you. What better guy than Paul? You know, he had all, he knew this from experience he was writing this his whole life. was about this faith, this this hope. And he, he took all the things that happened to him. We can't even imagine. That's exactly right. God knew what he was doing. He picked this guy to write the book. That's only half the verse. Verse 5. Hope won't let you down. Why? Why will hope not let me down? Because I, who have this hope in God, who've gone through this tribulation, who have this patience with God, who have this experience with God, all these things with God, I am with God. I have a relationship with God. I am a temple that houses God. Verse 5. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which has been given to us. You can summarize that like this. It comes with your salvation which has been brought about by God's love. That's the thing in which you have your hope. God is not going to shame you down or cause you to blush or leave you hanging or disappoint you because you belong to him. And he's never disappointed himself. He's never let himself down. And if you belong to him, he's not going to let you down either. Good place to stop. The bell's about to ring again. We'll pick it up in verse 6. Because he's about to tell you how you have that. You have that because of what Christ did for you. Not what you did for yourself, but what he did for you. A lot of this this text, there it is, we know from pieces, bits and pieces. But we're seeing how it all lays out as one big thought. You have all this because of what Christ did for you. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Thanks, everybody.